Okay, how are you guys doing? It's okay if I go ahead and start? Okay. So I want to do just a, a few minutes of answering some, what you call, call skeptical questions, uh, because the Bible tells us to be ready always to give an answer to every man with meekness and with fear. Sometimes that can be a challenge, um, but uh, we, we are to uh, try to uh, present information in, in as kind a way as possible so we can make a difference in people's lives. Um, I had the uh, Skeptic Society of Arizona follow me around for over a year, and uh, they would just literally hog any Q&A. And I mean, church service, youth group, anything I did, they, they would show up, 10 to 20 of them. And I would answer their questions, question after question. No, no insincere questions completely, but it started to have an impact on their members. They had come to the church, uh, church service, and I could, I could see it was having an impact on them. Uh, they, they've been told there's no answers to their questions. I kept answering and answering. And one night they showed up, and they were sitting at actually in the table like this setting, and the president of the Skeptic Society for the state was sitting right there, and he, he asked me a question, and I answered. Ask me another, and ask me another. Finally, he raises his hand to ask another insincere question, and I, and I say, hey, look, I've answered dozens of your guys' questions. Now I have a question for you. Um, I showed you several of the frauds right out of the biology textbooks. How, how often do you guys, you skeptics, go into the biology classrooms and, and debate the professors about what they're teaching? He said, well, we never, we never do that. We believe in Darwinian evolution. I said, oh, so you're really not the president of the skeptic society. You're president of the hypocrite society. Isn't that right? And the whole place roared in laughter, and I thought, well, I'm really going to catch it next time. They have never shown up again since. And that was about four years ago. So always be ready with meekness and with fear, and um, sometimes you just have to deal with them as it comes. But here's, here's a, uh, this is some of the liberal churches, and this is what they teach. This pastor in Tennessee stated, the Bible is not the word of God. It's not an answer book, and it's not inerrant or infallible. Well, the Bible says the prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I say God's word is true and trumps anyone who goes against God's word. Talking about prophetic accuracy, there are about 1,800 prophecies in the Bible, depending on how you, you count them up. Uh, every religious text makes prophecies, and maybe one out of five come true, and four out of five do not come true. The Bible even says the way you can tell if it's the word of God is the prophecies will come true. The Bible is about, oh, 95% of those have already come true with 100% accuracy. There's virtually no mathematical probability of getting 10 of them in a row, much less almost 1,800 of them in a row. It's the word of God. Uh, many of the prophecies are taking place right now in our very lifetimes, and the remaining ones will take place during the tribulation period. You know, the ones about Israel blow me away. I mean, just blow me away. The Bible says that in the last days, Israel will become a nation again. They'll become a nation in one day. They will uh, return in non-belief. They will turn to speaking Hebrew. Never has a dead language been brought back to life. They'll have a strong military. They'll be a stumbling block to the world. And for 18, almost 1,900 years, there was no Israel. And the Bible keeps talking about Israel in the last days and becoming a nation one day. And then in May of 1948, in one day, boom, there's Israel. 
after almost 1,900 years of no Israel. I mean, think about being a Christian just 100 years ago, and the Bible keeps talking about Israel. There hasn't been an Israel for 1,900 years. And boom, in one day, there's Israel, and they're a stumbling block to the world. They've come back in non-belief. They uh, return to speaking Hebrew, and on and on we can go. Uh, the other prophecies, if you want to know God's time frame, look at the prophecies regarding Israel. Pretty amazing, to say the least. But how about answering skeptical questions and accusations, such as, your Bible is filled with contradictions. Well, let's look at an internal consistency. If, you, if we witnessed a car accident at the nearest intersection, if 10 of us witnessed that accident, and two minutes later the police got there and gave us all a form to fill out on what we'd just seen, they would get 10 very contradictory statements of what we had just witnessed take place. Well, think about the Bible, 66 books, 40 different, different authors that range from doctors to, and kings and priests to shepherds and fishermen, written in three different languages in 15 different countries on three separate continents over a 1,500-year period of time, yet there's not, it is one unified account without a single contradiction that will stand up to scrutiny. That's the mark of the Word of God. They say the Bible's full of mistakes. Well, for instance, I'll give you a couple that they point to. In Matthew and Mark, we're talking about uh, Jesus leaving Jericho. And in Matthew, it says he encountered two blind men. And in uh, Mark and Luke, only one blind man is mentioned. So they say this is an error in the Bible. But there's, there's no error there. Let's say I was, I was talking to, to Matt and, and, and Joey earlier this morning. And I came up here and I said, hey, I was talking to Matt and Joey this morning. Be a true statement, right? If I came up here and say, I was talking to Matt this morning, be a true statement also, right? That's not an error. It's just two different accounts of, of an event. Well, why can't you acknowledge the Bible isn't infallible and has errors in it? Simply because nobody's ever shown me one that would hold up to scrutiny. Here's one that they love to throw out. It's a little technical, so follow me on this. This is one of their favorite ones. In 2 Chronicles, we're told about this huge brass bowl. In our terms, it's about 30 feet across. So we're told it's 10 cubits from brim to brim across, and it's 30 cubits round about, the circumference. Well, the way you get the circumference, the distance around the bowl, would be the diameter, which the Bible says is 10 cubits, times pi, which is 3.14, plus some change. Well, 10 times 3.14, it should be 31.4 cubits. And they say this is an error in the Bible. Well, it looks like one from the outside, right? But if you read a couple verses further, you read that the bowl was, the thickness was that of a hand breath. Well, let's say that hand breath was a little over four inches, and there's two sides. So let's say instead of measuring from the outside, you measure the diameter from the inside. So it'd be 10 cubits minus those eight some, some odd inches, which comes out to 4.55 cubits. So the 10 cubits minus 4.55 cubits leaves you with a, a diameter of 9.545 cubits across, times pi is 30 cubits. There's no error in the Bible. There's just areas we may not understand or have to have some thought as to what it says. My advice is when someone skeptic brings up some sort of a supposed contradiction or error, realize they're the one in error, 
and you might have to go look up some information to find the correct answer. Here's one. Archaeology proves the Bible is historically flawed. Uh, not hardly. Uh, back in the uh, 19th century, the newly forming branch of archaeology, skeptics thought that would refute the Bible. In fact, in the, in the um, 1800s, they were denying the uh, Old Testament accounts of various nations and kings. But real science caught up over the 20th century, and archaeologists discovered more than 40 of those ancient nations and kings through their archaeological studies. In fact, the two most renowned uh, archaeologists of the 20th century said that the Bible is the single most accurate source document of all history. In fact, Israeli archaeologists uh, using the Bible found King David's palace. That was another, they said there was never a King David. They found King David's palace using the Bible, and the archaeologists said, and this was just in 2005, what's amazing about the Bible is it's amazingly accurate. No, archaeology and real science is a believer's best friend. They actually use the Bible to map out and find things in the Middle East all of the time. Here's another one. Astronomy proves the universe is billions of years old. Well, not hardly. That's, that's all a belief system. Who saw the universe a million years ago, much less a billion years ago, right? This from New Scientist magazine. Volcanic, on the moon, volcanic activity on the moon indicates it's only uh, about a million years old. Well, couldn't volcanic activity on the moon also indicate it's maybe only a few thousand years old? <laughs> Absolutely. Jupiter is a hot planet, but it's losing heat twice as fast as it takes it in from the sun. It can't be hundreds of thousands of years old, much less millions of years old. It would be a solid ice ball by now. They put the Hubble telescope up in outer space with this powerful lens. They wanted to prove the Bible wrong. They, they point this powerful lens into outer space. It's so powerful it only, it only covers a, less than a degree, uh, just a pinprick uh, of space at a time and they left it open they pointed it to outer space and left the, o the lens open for four days 96 hours and what they thought when they developed the film they would find the the light from right after the big bang at the start of the universe from their perspective when they developed the film what they found were thousands and thousands of tightly wound spiral galaxies in that little pinprick of space each galaxy made of billions of individual stars. And they're so tightly wound up, they're still spiral galaxies. After less than about 50 million years, at the pace that they're spreading, they should lose the spiral shape and be evenly spread out. They're still tightly wound. It's called the winding up dilemma. The universe is too, wound, too tightly wound up to be old. You know, Abraham was promised from God that the... Uh, his, his, God compares the numbers of stars in heaven to the grains of sand on the beaches. Well, this is that, you know, you, you've been to the beach, you, know, you can imagine all the grains of sand in the world, right? But at that time, you could only see about 1,500 stars with the naked eye. And God's comparing the numbers of stars in heaven to the grains of sand on the beaches of the world. And finally, NASA caught up and proved that the numbers of stars in heaven can be compared to the numbers of the grains of sand on the beaches. Mind-boggling. The real science always catches up with the Bible eventually. In fact, this uh, astrophysicist stated, I believe the universe is billions of years old, but 
I don't think we have much in the way of observational evidence in astronomy to conflict with a six or 7,000 year old creation. He doesn't believe that, but he says there's no evidence. It's just what you, how you want to interpret it. Here's another one I got. If your God didn't make the sun until the fourth day, how could you have days one through three? Have you ever heard something along those lines? My friends, this, the, uh, a day is one spin of the earth upon its axis. doesn't have anything to do with it, whether the sun was there or not. And besides, God provided light from day one. Okay, and you're, I'm sure you've heard this, but it takes light millions of years to reach the earth. How could God have gotten light here in six days? Well, God didn't get light here in six days. He got light here on day one. When I point that out, it doesn't seem to help with the, <laughs> the situation much. But back to the word of God. I like to point out these scoffers. They're going to claim uniformity, and they're going to deny the flood. But not only are these scoffers in the last days going to claim uniformity, according to 2 Peter 3, they're also going to be willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. God made a mature universe. He didn't uh, say hey, to Adam and Eve, hey, you hang out here for a couple million years and light will get here eventually. No, he made, he made the, uh, the universe, he made the earth, he made our solar system. He developed it and made it ready for life, and then he put uh, man and animals in it. It'd be like if you were going to get a fish. You, know, you, you, you don't just get a fish and go lay it on the counter and then go to the store and get an aquarium and get some water and come back because fish is going to be dead, right? Now you go, you get the aquarium, you put some gravel in it, you get the little, the little guy with the little scuba diver with the bubbles coming out of him, you know, get some fish food, put water in it, and then you, you put the fish in it when it's ready, right? God did the same thing. Regarding light, did you know that scientists have, light travels 186,282 miles per second through our atmosphere. Did you know that scientists have slowed light to 100 miles an hour? They've slowed light to 30 miles an hour. They've slowed light and brought it to a dead stop and captured it and re-released it. Did you know that? Other scientists working in conjunction with Princeton were able to speed light impulses to over 300 times the speed of light, 55 million miles per second. My contention is this. If mankind and our finite little brains can play around with the speed of light, I don't think the creator of the universe, of genetic information, all life, etc., has any problem getting light here when he says he did it. It's not a problem for God. Grow up. Science shows there's not enough water to cover the mountains. Well, actually, right now, if 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. Many of those same scientists will admit there is a, a global flood on Mars where there's not a liquid drop of water. But here we are, only 29% of their surface is dry land, and they'll say there never was a global flood, despite the stratified layers, etc. That's bias. In fact, if the Earth was relatively level, the water would be almost two miles deep around the entire planet. Toward the end of the flood, the, the waters rushed up by the mountains and down into the valleys. I think the mountains arose and the valleys sank down toward the end of the flood. The waters sloshed back and forth against them for a couple of months until they settled into the low areas. The world's, world's tallest mountains, like Mount Everest, covered with seashells. That's the San Francisco Peaks right outside of Flagstaff where I live. Top of the mountain covered with seashells. 
Grand Canyon's rim, 7,500 feet above sea level, covered with seashells. The mountains arose toward the end of the flood. And let's face it, if there was a global flood, we should find Earth's crust made of sedimentary layers laid down by water full of millions and billions of fossils, but no transitional fossils of one kind changing into another. We should find polystrata fossils that traverse multiple strata layers. We find tree fossils, fish fossils that go through multiple layers. They had to form quickly. We should find seafloor dwellers in the lowest layers because... That's where they lived. They would have been the first things buried. We should find marine creatures throughout all of the sedimentary layers laid down by water. And we should find the land dwellers in the upper strata as they could move higher. They'd also tend to float when they drown. And that's exactly what is found. Well, didn't the Colorado River carve out Grand Canyon over millions of years of time? No, the Colorado River had nothing to do with the original formation of Grand Canyon. Let me ask you a question, logical question. If rivers carve out huge canyons over millions of years of time, and if the earth is billions of years old, why isn't every river, gully, stream, and creek in its own Grand Canyon by now? Because rivers don't carve out canyons over millions of years. They haven't had millions of years to do so. Even if they could, it took a very special set of circumstances to form Grand Canyon. There I am on the rim of the canyon with a school group I brought there. That, do you see that butte right behind my head? Some of the greatest proof of the global flood anywhere in the world. Let me explain this. Late flood waters... The continents had separated late in the flood in what we call continental drift today. happened quickly, not slowly and uniformly as we see them moving today, which is maybe less than an inch a year. We don't know, it might just be rocking back and forth now. But late flood waters running over what's now the south southwestern United States removed two miles of rock layers from what is now uh, the southern Utah, northern Arizona region, leaving behind what is geologically called the Grand Staircase. So on the left is the depiction of Grand Canyon. If you notice that uplifted area, Grand Canyon is a mile deep, but it doesn't cut a mile into the, into the uh, plateau. No, no, the area uplifted and Grand Canyon cuts through the upwarp. When you're on the rim of the canyon, you're on top of the upwarp looking into the, the chasm that cut through the upwarp. But if you follow that top uh, mustard-colored layer, which depicts the Kaibab limestone at the canyon, if you go north, you notice it's subducted and buried by up to two miles of other layers. They used to cover the region, but have been removed, cutting the Grand Staircase, which is Bryce, Zion, and Vermilion Cliffs, the major um, cliffs. So if you go 60 miles north of Grand Canyon, and this is where our river raft trip gets out at Lee's Ferry, you see that 2,000-foot cliff? That's the Vermilion Cliffs. Those layers have been removed south across Grand Canyon all the way to the sea. Now, if you climb up on top of those and go 40 to 45 miles north, you come to the 2,500-foot-tall cliffs that Zion is formed in. If you climb up on top of those 2,500 feet and go 40 miles north, you come to the 2,500-foot pink cliffs where we find Bryce today. That's the Grand Staircase. Bryce, Zion, Vermilion Cliffs, gone all the way to the sea. Almost two miles of layers used to exist above Grand Canyon. So we think what happened was the two miles were removed, the mountains arose, forming the Kaibab Upwarp, 
as the plateau lifted upward about 3,500 feet above the plain. That's a satellite photo of Grand Canyon. The white is on snow that's on the upwarp. And the waters, Marble Canyon, knifes in, channels in from the north. The Little Colorado River channels in from the east. They met at the base of the upwarp, and they cut through that upwarp in a matter of days, leaving behind Grand Canyon. We're talking waters running through there at about 120 miles an hour. The power of water is amazing. We use, we use water, pressurized water in industry to cut hardened steel. 50,000 PSI, and the key is to have some grit in it. It'll cut right through hardened steel. And you're talking hundreds of, of thousands of gallons of water rushing through at 120 miles an hour, carrying bits of sand all the way up to 2,000 or even 200,000 pound boulders. It was like a giant belt sander ripping through the upwarp, leaving the canyon behind in a matter of days. Uh, above the rim is where you see the proof of the canyon. Just south of Grand Canyon's entry on the south side out of Williams, you drive right past Red Butte, 900 feet on top of the Kaibab limestone that makes up the rim of the canyon. It's the 600-foot Moenkopi and the 300-foot Chinle layers that are picked up 65 miles north of the canyon, proving they used to cover the entire region. If you've been to Grand Canyon, you have seen this butte and probably didn't give it a second thought. Most awesome proof of the flood you can show. And if you come in on the eastern entrance by a Desert View, and that's me at Desert View explaining to people the buttes, Cedar Butte is right behind me there, 900 feet on top of the canyon. And there used to be almost 10 times that much sediment on top of those buttes. So I'll have people at the rim take their thumb and finger and just bracket the bottom of the top of that butte and then put 10 times that on top of it and it blows people away with the truth of God and his word. The vertical canyon walls signify rapid formation. The lack of rock debris shows recent formation. Now here's another one. You're an embarrassment to Christianity. Carbon dating proves our planet is billions of years old. Well, first of all, carbon dating is only good for a few thousand years. So if you ever read something... I see these in science magazines all the time where they carbon dated something over 100,000 years. You know they have no idea what they're talking about. It's only good for a few thousand years at best. And I say only about 2,000, and that's because they can calibrate it to known historical events. But um, again, avoid false knowledge, false, uh, even if it's masquerading as science. And uh, carbon dating, they measure the amount of carbon-14 in organic remains and it decays away over time. It should be pretty much gone a measurable amounts in, in 80,000 years. But let's say 100,000 years, let's be as generous as possible. You can't carbon date something older than that, there'd be no carbon in it. But as it decays away, the less carbon-14 in an item, the older it's gonna date, right? Because it's decaying away. But it's only good for a few thousand years, it'll all be gone. Recent studies have found carbon-14 in organic remains in all fossil-bearing layers, which we're told are over 500 million years old. The carbon-14 would have been gone in less than 100,000 years. That proves all those layers had to form in the same event. Think about this. Never has a natural gas deposit, an oil deposit, or a layer of coal been found that doesn't have carbon-14 in them, which would be gone in just a few thousand years. We're told these things are hundreds of millions of years old, putting death before I had them. Somebody's right. 
and somebody's wrong. And I like making sure everyone knows exactly who that is. Well, how do you, that's what I said. How do you explain the different human races? And I'm going to just kind of wrap up with these last couple of things. I think this is really, really an important issue today. How do you explain the different human races? Easily, there's only one human race. It's called the human race. The Bible says God created man in his own image, male and female. All humans are made in the image of God. It was Darwin's book that the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races, teaching that in the struggle for life, teaching that we evolved to different levels. We didn't evolve to different levels. We were created in the image of God. At the start of the flood, the fountains of the deep erupted. The hot fountain waters warmed the oceans. It's estimated the flood waters averaged 120 degrees Fahrenheit. This led to massive evaporation and cloud cover that was raining down over the, the equators and pounding snow onto the poles to form the one and only ice age. Near the end of the flood, the earth's fractured plates slid apart along where those fountains of the deep had been erupted. Um, erupting. The, uh, the world is crisscrossed with about 50,000 miles of fault lines. Most of those are scars left over from where the fountains of the deep were erupting. And the continent slid apart quickly, not slowly and uniformly like they are today. Uniformity, once again, messing up with the correct observations. The Bible says, of, talks of Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided. His Peleg means uh, divided or furrowed. In his days, the earth was divided. Well, during Peleg's lifetime, people refused to spread out around the globe as God had commanded them. So God came and he confused languages at Babel, forcing people groups to spread around the globe. They could do this. This is about 250 years after the flood because the ice caps, which were a direct result of the flood, had not, stopped, had not started melting yet. The water was still up in the ice caps. So animals had already spread around the globe. Now people could spread around the globe. Over the next uh, following, let's say, five to 600 years after the flood, the oceans were cooling and cooling and cooling until they finally cooled to where the evaporation slowed and the ice age came to an end. And the ice caps in the lower latitudes melted back quickly, filling in the oceans. Remember, the uh, ice caps used to come down to where Kansas City, Missouri is today. They're 2,000 miles north of there today. Don't destroy the U.S. economy because the ice caps are melting. They've been melting for about 4,000 years now. But they melted quickly from the lower latitudes up, filled in the oceans, and people were separated by languages, nations, islands, and continents. People had to marry. In fact, here's a, here's a, a textbook, a secular book, says... 20,000 years ago, it was about 4,000 years ago, sea level was 400 feet lower and the ice masses melted and the sea level rose. Now, see, secular science agrees with me on this. They just uh, are wrong on, their, on how long ago it was. And the earth was divided. People had to marry within the gene pools captured on their particular island or continent. And slight adaptational changes were caught in the various gene pools leading to the slightly different people groups we have today. Every one of them still made in the image of God, none of them evolving animals to different levels. We're all made in the image of God. 
That's what our founding fathers put in the very declaration that ended after hundreds of thousands of Americans sacrificed their life to get rid of slavery because we agreed with the biblical concept that all men are created equal. So the slight, ad- the slight adaptational changes, mainly the biggest difference in people groups is the color of our skin. That is the biggest difference. And that has to do with how much this element you have called uh, melanin. How much melanin you have in your skin. I'm melanin challenged. Some people are melanin rich and everything in between. And as the Bible says, why does one man deal treacherously with his brother? We're all made in the image of God. Differences come again from the sorting of the loss of the gene pools on the four couples that were aboard Noah's Ark, which originally, of course, came from Adam and Eve. And as I said earlier, even National Geographic did a study and said all humans come from one of four distinct gene pools. All humans made in the image of God. We should, we should all be together on this and stop letting people race bait us into dividing our nation. If we didn't evolve to various levels, how do you explain all the cavemen? Well, first of all, when someone asks me about cavemen, they probably mean ape men. But just to answer the cavemen issue, King David was a caveman for a while, right? I mean, if you were split up at the Tower of Babel and you didn't know how to build homes and you came across a real nice cave formation, you probably would have become, guess what? A caveman. And, um, but about the ape man, how do we explain the supposed ape man? Here's a, here's a new book showing humans connected to jellyfish and worms, all connected with a nice red line. What more for proof could you want than a red line, right? How about some fossil evidence? Let's take a quick look at a few of their famous hominids, the supposed closest link between ape and man. Um, Piltdown man was the messiah of Darwinian evolution from about 1910 through 1955. For 45 years, it misled so many people, not millions, billions of people of rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that we finally kicked creation and prayer out of school here in the U.S., started teaching our kids they evolved without God. And then in the mid-50s, it was proven these jokers had taken the skull cap of a human, the jawbone from an orangutan, filed them down so they fit together, acid-treated both sides, buried them in a rock quarry in Piltdown, England, waited two years and came along and dug up Piltdown, man, and spent the rest of their lives as world-renowned Darwinists speaking on any college campus they wanted. And it was proven it was a total and complete fraud, but not before it misled billions of people. Proven to be an orangutan. So this is um, Ramapithecus. He was discovered in 1932. They they found the lower jawbone. It was crushed into about 40 pieces. So they reconstructed. It had all apes' teeth. They reconstructed the 40 pieces with apes' teeth, but in the shape of a human jawbone. What were the odds of that? You know, total fraud, right? And they announced Ramapithecus, the missing link. And for 45 years in the textbooks went Ramapithecus. Then in 1977, it was proven this was an orangutan after misleading hundreds of millions of people. So some kid, he's studying to be a dentist, hands me his advanced biology book from dental school. He says, Russ, go through this and find some frauds. I... I, I've got, there's so many frauds, I couldn't, eat, I would be here a week going through the frauds. So, but he wanted me to look, so I'm sitting there talking to him, I'm flipping through the book, and, and there's a drawing of Ramapithecus' teeth. That caught my eye. I stopped, 
Oh, now they've put him back in the textbooks with a new name, Sivapithecus. And it says Sivapithecids are more closely related to humans. This genus now includes the animal formerly known as Ramapithecus. Well, proven a fraud 40 years ago. Now he's branched off into ancestors. Still using the same drawing. Absolutely mind-boggling. I actually got a call from the author. She said she was going to sue me. I said, what are you going to sue me for? You're making fun of me. I said, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just making fun of what you wrote. But, you know, tell you what, I'm actually just reporting what you wrote. If you don't like it, uh, take it out of the book, and I won't be able to talk about it anymore. That was like 10 years ago. I haven't been sued yet, so I guess she lost her interest. But you guys heard of Lucy? Lucy is the Messiah for evolution today, has been for 40 years. Uh, they say the, they found about uh, half of a skeleton and they said, well, the, the thigh bone, the, fingo, the femur angled to the knee, and humans have angled thigh bones, proving it's an ape becoming human. They forgot to mention that all tree-dwelling apes have angled femurs, no evolution there. They said, though, the knee was, think about this, slightly bigger than a normal ape's knee, proving it's becoming a human. If you took the knee joint of everybody in this room, they'd be different sizes. That doesn't prove anything. They also forgot to mention the knee in question was found a mile away and 230 feet deeper in the strata. Yeah, if that was Lucy's knee, I want to see the airplane that hit that monkey because he must have been going about 700 miles an hour right through the treetops. Wow. This from 1987. Anatomists have concluded Lucy is not a link between ape and man and did not walk upright like a human, yet it is still the Messiah of Darwinism today. And here's a nice drawing of Lucy um, talking on a cell phone. I mean, what are, what are the odds? Back in 2002, they announced Tomei Man was older than any known hominid, making their finders world-renowned Darwinists. Notice how their findings always have to be the oldest or the youngest? That's how the grant money game is played, by the way. But when they found it, Nature Magazine said, this is just an ancient ape. When they found it, Science News said it has ape's teeth. It didn't walk upright like a human. Look at the brow ridge. Does that look like a, a, an ape? It doesn't look like a human. It looks like a little gorilla, doesn't it? Mind-boggling. Frankfurt University's Professor Reiner Prosch von Zeiten was a world-renowned evolutionary anthropologist and carbon dating expert. He had discovered the oldest known Homo sapien, which he dated at 36,000 years. And then after 30 years of being a world-renowned Darwinist speaker and finder of the oldest Homo sapien, it was proven this guy was a complete and total fraud. He didn't even know how to run the carbon dating equipment, so he just made up dates. Is it really that easy? Absolutely, because they're desperate. In fact, one of the skulls he was touting actually came from a man who died in 1750. He was just a grave robber. Nebraska man was used as proof of Darwinism. All they found was a piece of a broken tooth. But from the broken tooth, they reconstructed Nebraska man, his family, and the tools they would have worked with. And then it was proven the tooth came from an extinct pig. Unbelievable. There's a real Nebraska man right there. <laughs> this scientist admitted, in the not-too-distant past, there was almost no fossil material, and speculation was intense. And, well, to be truthful... There's still not much real data, so speculation is still active. Speculation like that means once upon a time. And the modern vernacular for once upon a time is millions of years ago. 
Whenever you hear millions of years, you know you're about to hear a fairy tale. Dwayne Gish defined Darwinism as a substance of fossils hoped for, the evidence of links, unseen. My friends, a sower went out to sow seed, and some fell by the wayside. It was immediately devoured, produced no fruit. Some fell among stony places or among thorn bushes, and it started to grow, but in some cases, the roots weren't deep enough, and it withered up, never produced fruit. Some were choked out by the thorn bushes, the wiles of this world, if you will. But some fell on good soil and bore fruit up to a hundredfold. And I think Jesus is saying, prepare the soil and then plant the seed in good soil and reap a bountiful harvest of saved souls, including our own souls. Prepare the soil and plant the seed. A farmer would never go out and plant a seed on a thorn-choke, rocky hillside. He would prepare the soil, remove the rocks, plow the field. Then he would plant the seed. Prepare the soil, plant the seed, reap a bountiful harvest of saved souls. I'll end with this. Gone through it a couple times, but I think it's the most important part of my message. How can you possibly explain there being a loving God in this world full of death and suffering? I explain it this way. God didn't give us the world the way it is today, full of death and suffering. He gave us a perfect creation. What happened to it was Adam's original sin. It corrupted the creation, allowing death to enter while separating us from God and requiring our redemption with him. How loving is God? Well, what he, we deserve is to be separated for eternity. But he loves us so much, he came and suffered and died on a cross so our sins could be forgiven. And all he asks is we believe in him. We put our faith in him. We spend eternity with him in heaven. My challenge to everybody here would be put your faith in the non-compromised word of God, word for word and cover to cover, and let's spend eternity with him in heaven Let me end my part with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and uh, early afternoon and for every dear soul that gave up their their time to be here. I hope and I pray information we shared will be a blessing, it'll be eye-opening, faith-building, and especially for for the youth and the students that are here, we'll give them some information and ammunition that they'll uh, hang on to their faith through all the attacks and the peer pressure that's out there today. I ask you to please bless everybody here. Get us all home safely. In Jesus' great name, I do pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Give him a hand, shall we? Great job. So we're going to wrap it up. It's been a long day, and you've stayed with it, so you're to be commended. Um, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you have been given a gift, such a gift, in what you've heard today. Or I don't know very many places, and I'm a reader. I read a lot. I've never heard anybody put it all together, just like Russ has. God has given him a gift, and he's blessed you with it. So I'm sure um, you have things you need to do today and, and places you need to go from here. Um, but should you uh, feel compelled to say thank you, I'm sure he would appreciate that. Um, uh, but at the same time, we understand the busy schedules and every, of everybody. And one of the big ways you can say thank you is go to his table and um, pick up a DVD set, uh, sign up for the book. And um, this is a, a, a way we can just humbly express our gratitude. Amen? All right. So let me pray for the group. Uh, did you have anything else, Russ? Are you all mind, your mind free and heart clear on everything? Or? <laughs> okay. So, uh, so 
I think uh, we're just going to wrap it up and, and call it good, shall we? All right, let me pray for the group. So, Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for just your love to us, and thank you for the gift of creation, the Word of God. Thank you for the messenger that's been sent to us all the way from Arizona today. And now um, we have a stewardship, just like Russ had shared. We pray that the Word has been sown on good soil, and, Father, we would just... Let this shape our, our worldview of where we've come from, what went wrong, what you're doing to fix it, and how it all gets restored eventually. Thank you for this um, presentation. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the food services. Thank you for the elders. Thank you for the setup team. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great church. And it feels good to know we're in that 2% category too. Thank you. And, uh, and we will be forever grateful. In your strong name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. Have a great day.